calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello again, everybody. It's Ron Remkes here with CFA Institute, and today we're joined by Justin Wolfers of the University of Michigan. Justin, uh, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here, mate. All right. Um, Justin, in your work, you've talked a lot about the economics of happiness. And just to uh, give everyone an understanding, uh, it's a very unconventional sort of subject. Uh, could you give our audience just an understanding of really uh, the nuts and bolts of, of what you're talking about? Just give us a quick overview. Absolutely. I think the first question is, how do we measure happiness? Um, and uh, you can think of lots of different ways, but the primary way we do it is you run surveys. Ask people, uh, taking all things together, Ron, how would you say things are these days? Would you say you're very happy, pretty happy, or not too happy? I'm happy. I'm okay, happy. great. And so uh, that's not data. And we can uh, collate hundreds of thousands of responses like that, um, throw them in the computer, and ask what are the correlates of happiness in different countries or within a country or what happens through time. Um, so the natural question an economist would ask, we economists are a little too obsessed with income, but is your answer to that question about happiness correlated with income? And it turns out there's actually three versions of that question. We could say within the United States right now, are people on incredibly high incomes are more likely to be very happy? And it turns out the answer is yes. Or we could say, are people in high income countries like the United States, more likely to say they're happy than people in low-income countries? Turns out the answer is yes. We'd also say as countries get richer through time, so as the process of economic development goes on, uh, countries like um, South Korea, as, as, as they get richer, people more likely to report being happy, and the answer, once again, is yes. Uh, so there's a very tight link between income and happiness. It's the sort of thing that would surprise no economist, but actually comes as real news to a lot of psychologists. Is that right? Why psychologists? Two answers. One is there was a finding in the literature previously people believed that while rich people within a country were happier than poor people, they didn't believe that rich countries were happier than poor countries. And this gets to the second, and the question is why, and this gets to the second uh, reason I think people have a different view. A lot of us carry around a view that maybe what matters is not income, but whether you're richer than the next guy. Right? So you're always comparing yourself to the Joneses. Well, if that were true, then within a society, rich people would be happier than poor people. But if you made everyone within the society richer, you wouldn't make anyone happier because you'd make me richer, but you'd also make the Joneses richer, right? right? And it turns out that the data just suggests that's dead wrong. It looks like what matters is income seems to, uh, happiness seems to rise with income. Now, in economics, we often talk about um, the difference between correlation and causation. Is it possible that just as an alternate, um, you know, the degree of freedom that one might have might better correlate to happiness versus uh, income per se? Yeah, so let me take that in two parts. So the first thing people worry about when you think about correlation and causation is, is reverse causation. So could it be that happier people earn higher incomes? And actually, if you think about it, 
potentially that explains why executives are much, uh, that, that could explain some of why some people are, are, some of the rich are happier than some of the poor, which is they were happier and that's actually a really useful job characteristic, particularly if you're in sales or something like that. But the idea that this would explain why the US is richer than Burundi, that those poor Burundians would only be rich if only they'd cheer up, I think strikes me as absurd. Um, and so that's why I think it's, it's surely not that happiness is causing income. Now, I have been careful throughout to talk about correlations, and that's because it could be there are some third factors going on. So you're right, it could be that what really matters to people is freedom. Um, and countries which have more freedom have higher incomes and also happier people. Could be what matters is democracy. Could be the absence of pollution. It could be the absence of crime. The list of possible things that it could be that are mediating that relationship uh, is so long that I'm not particularly optimistic that we can figure out what it is that's going on. Right. I think the thing that I, I, am, I, I am convinced of is there's a group of industrialized countries, uh, the US for sure, Canada, Australia, my home, homeland, um, Denmark, Sweden, that are both very developed and very happy. And there's a bunch of the rest of the world, incredibly underdeveloped, sub-Saharan Africa, and very unhappy. And my advice to those countries would be, try and be more like the developed countries. I'm not sure precisely what it is that makes the Danes happier, whether it's the welfare state, whether it's money, whether it's a well-functioning democracy, and so on. But I think the full package of things they've got, the full package of things that goes with economic development, taken as a whole, look like they're probably causing higher happiness. Okay. Well, it's very fascinating. It's a, it's a whole branch of uh, economics that... Um that most people don't encounter every day. So I'm very curious to, to learn more about that. Um, you've also written a lot about prediction markets. And I'm wondering if you can sort of highlight um, the benefits and insights that prediction markets offer us versus sort of your traditional uh, forecast of markets. Yeah. So, you know, a prediction market, first of all, is what is it? Uh, you might be able to bet a dollar, say, that Hillary Clinton becomes... You might be able to buy a security that pays a dollar if Hillary Clinton becomes our next president. That security right now is trading at around 35 cents. So you could infer from that that markets believe that Hillary is about a 35% chance to become president. Now, if I asked you to think about the odds that Hillary wins, there's a huge variety of factors that you would take into account. You'd think about current polling. You'd think about the, the likelihood of an historic first female presidency. You'd think about whether people are going to get tired of the Clinton name. Or against that, you'd think about the, the very positive name recognition that she has. Um, you'd think about whether the economy is going to do well and so people want to re-elect Democrats. Huge array of factors. So a standard approach to forecasting says, well, let's put a number of these factors, well, let's go out and poll people, right? And that would be useful, except the truth is people aren't really thinking about the 2016 election right now. And you could poll them and they could tell you all sorts of silly stuff. And in any case, it's not taking account of what's going to happen to the dynamics of the race over the next few years. So prediction markets actually do better than polls. Another approach would be to say, let's focus on the fundamentals. Uh, the state of the economy in 2016 will determine whether or not a Democrat's going to get re-elected. Um, but we don't know a lot about the state of the economy yet in 2016. In any case, whenever we, we think about a, a mechanical, statistical forecasting approach, it's going to leave a lot of factors out. But when I ask people to put their money where their mouth is and bet on whether Hillary is going to be the next president, they can think about all those factors. And so the, the price will come to reflect supply and demand, will come to reflect the wisdom of crowds, as we call it, and I think will come to reflect all those different types of information. I think that explains why, historically, 
Prediction markets have done a better job in predicting the outcome of elections than polls or statistical forecasting models. But, but can they stand on their own? Can you have a prediction market stand on its own, or does it require the, the hard work and effort of lots of market participants trying to figure out the markets um, independently of the prediction market? In other words, is it kind of a, a parasite host problem? Yeah, so by this view, you're calling what I do studying parasites, the market, where all it's doing is aggregating the information that the good folks and who run public opinion polls, uh, for instance, right. are doing. So there's actually a way we can test this. Um, it turns out that back at the beginning of the, 19, uh, the 20th century, there were very, very few people know this, but literally on the curb at Wall Street, there were very large-scale prediction markets being run on US presidential elections. And the logic is obvious, and it's one that uh, all the folks, uh, uh, the CFA folks will know well, which is what the traders like to do after hours. They like to keep trading. So these guys would go from betting on stocks to betting on the election. Right. Now, it turns out the 1916 election, for instance, there was a large amount, millions of dollars being bet on that. There was no public opinion polling. You know why? It hadn't been invented yet. So we actually have this whole period of US history from uh, you know, the, the late 19th century and the early 20th century where we had prediction markets, but no polling because no polling had been invented. And it turns out prediction markets were just as accurate during that period as they are today when they also get to reflect polling information. So it dispels that myth. So it sounds like, it at least suggests, that what prediction markets are doing is aggregating information. And maybe they're aggregating the same information that pollsters do today, just in a different way. but they were already doing it. Okay. Uh, when you've got hundreds of people trading on an election, they're thinking about, what are my friends and family, how are my friends and family going to vote? What are the number of yard signs out in my neighborhood? Things like that. That's a lot of what pollsters today are trying to pick up. Okay, cool, that's interesting. Um, You've also talked about uh, prediction markets in the context of inside individual businesses, and I believe one of the examples you used was Best Buy. Um, can you talk about how an individual business might use that and how you could apply that concept to, um, to other things? Yeah. So the idea here is lots of businesses have forecasting problems. You've got to figure out next month's sales. You've got to figure out whether you should make, if you're a clothing manufacturer, whether you should make flat fronts or pleats. Um, all sorts of things that rely on forecasts. Um, so what do you, what's the standard technology we use for producing forecasts within corporations? It's this terrible technology called a staff meeting. <laughs> well, what you do is you get a bunch of folks who work in your company around the, around the table. Some of them have copies of Excel and complicated spreadsheets, and some of them just have their guts. They yell at each other. Um, it's often the case that the overconfident sales guy will demand to be heard despite the fact he or she's a clown. Uh, the very smart woman who works in accounting who sees a lot of what's actually going on might not want to speak up in the meeting. And then the, the brown noser from marketing will say to the boss, whatever you say, I think, but I think it extra strongly. Mm -hmm. So these meetings are an absolutely terrible way of aggregating information. What if instead within a corporation we said, we have to forecast next year's sales? What I'm going to do is run a little stock market within the company. And we're going to have a stock that pays a dollar for every million dollars revenue we have next year. And I'm going to let everyone trade in it. Well, the terrible dynamics of staff meetings are going to go away. And instead, what we're going to get is people trading against each other, aggregating their, their unique insights from their parts of the corporation uh, in a way that hopefully is going to lead the, the market price to give you better forecasts. I think that's a super cool idea. And has that been done successfully at a lot of firms? No. No. Um, and I think there's, 
a bunch of explanations. So one is regulatory. It's actually quite difficult to set up these things in a way that is regarded not as being betting. And, and also in-house counsel is often very um, conservative about setting these things up. Um, another is, to be honest, not a lot of executives are that interested in f- accurate forecasts. Because think about what this does. You have to sort of stand back as the CEO and say, you know what, I don't know the right forecast for next year. I'm not the smartest guy at this company. There's a lot of disaggregated information out on the shop floor among my juniors, folks who are nowhere near as talented as I am. And what I should be doing is trying to aggregate that information rather than using my own genius. Now, there's a lot of things we can say about our corporate leaders, but not many of them are humble enough to say, I should be trusting the guys on the shop floor to aggregate information rather than using my own gut. Um, And so I think there is a real failing, but I think part of the failing is that of business uh, to think about this. And then I think the third thing is prediction markets are kind of a good idea, and you and I as guys who think about economics can understand them. But if you go into lots of places and you said, you know, we're going to have a stock that pays a dollar for each million dollars in revenue we have, and we had a a little stock market set up with a bid and an ask. That's how you and I think, but it's not how most people think. And so people might find it simply too complicated to be trading in a market like that. And so I think one of the things corporations could do is instead of going all the way to thinking about prediction markets, trying to think about things that would give you a lot of the magic that a prediction market does, aggregating information from the shop floor, without the complexity of a formal financial market. And so maybe simple things like asking people what they think will happen. Uh, providing prizes if they do a better job, um, things like that, or even just anything that avoids the terrible properties of, of forecasting meetings um, is probably going to help move you towards better forecasts. Okay. And, and more broadly in terms of the regulatory environment, is, is there um, any place you know, either in the U.S. or globally that is really embracing prediction markets? Is there, is there anything that is um, a broad set of useful tools for investors? Because I know there's been somewhat adversarial relationship so far. Yeah. So let me tell you the, the bad news story, the good news story, and the in-between story. The bad news story is there's no single corporation that has fundamentally transformed the way it's done, doing business by embracing prediction markets, where they've just said, we're getting rid of our forecasting team, we're going to put in markets, we're going to listen to those markets almost religiously. That's the bad news story. Here's the good news story. Actually, some of the most important organizations in the United States effectively do embrace prediction markets in a very important way. Think about what Janet Yellen does. Uh, When Janet Yellen is trying to evaluate the state of the economy, she'll look at Fed funds futures. Uh, That's essentially a prediction market and what the Fed is going to do. She'll look at things like um, uh, foreign exchange rate and oil price futures, and those are very important things that are going to feed into the Fed's models, but again, effectively, they're prediction markets. The Fed is very sensitive to what's going on in financial markets, and it's not because they care about the Dow. It's that they think the Dow has information about the future of the economy. Essentially, that's the basic idea of prediction markets. So that's the success story, which is, in fact, I think this idea is something that, that we should listen to the information being aggregated in financial markets is actually something that really does guide policy. I think the truth is sort of, you know, halfway in between the, the negative and the very positive spin I just gave, which is um, there are organizations which are embracing the insights. Um, they realize it's useful to listen to markets. But more importantly, it's not just about listening to markets. It's about aggregating information from wherever it happens to be. Um, and so if, even if you don't do it by way of 
of a formal financial market, if instead you're running employee surveys or you've got um, more formal ways of aggregating information, um, I'm going to count those as a, as a success for this research program, which basically says there's useful information. What we need to do is find ways of aggregating it in a useful way. Well, that's great. Uh, Justin, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for joining us as well. And be sure to reach all of our content uh, online at cfainstitute.org or the Enterprising Investor blog. Thank you. Copyright 2014 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.